All right, go to Romans 10. Romans chapter 10. Uh, in light of what we just shared with regard to our trip, uh, this opportunity you guys sent us on, I want to consider our urgent task from Romans 10. Uh, and there's there's a, from a church standpoint, and it's a, a conversation that's more prevalent than you may realize, there's a question that comes up from time to time, why do we do what we do in engaging uh, the nations? Some people may think, and well, some people do think, that's an incredible expense of time and specifically money. Uh, I mentioned that this trip probably costs all total uh, around twenty-five to 30000 Um People pay in their way, you know, out of pocket, those kinds of things. Um, and so why do we, or why must we be, as the church, a strategic part of engaging the nations? And it's because the task is urgent. And so uh, listen to some numbers. Uh, if you're a numbers person, this will be good for you. If you're not, just listen anyway. Um, I'll refer you to a website, peoplegroups.org, uh, that gives an idea of the task. That's where my information comes from. Uh, it's put out by the uh, IMB Global Research Department. 11,759 people groups are in the world. And so a people group is defined by uh, the, the largest seg- population segment through which the gospel can pass without hitting a, sp- a, a unique language or culture barrier. And so almost 12,000 people groups representing, I don't know if you realize this, but the world population is now at about 7.5 billion people. When we were giving these statistics just, say, five or ten years ago, we were using numbers like 6.2 billion. So population growth is increasing uh, quite, a, a, quite a fast clip there. So of those 11,759 people groups, over 7,000, 7,070 are considered unreached, which means they are, uh, by research, indicating they are less than 2% evangelical Christian. And so 7,000 unreached, and... That 7,000 unreached people group represents 4.4 billion people. So over half of the people in the world are considered to be unreached. And these uh, people, these men, women, boys, and girls, live, uh, are born, live, and more than likely die without having any access to the gospel. Uh, they've not heard the gospel, and in a lot of cases, they actually don't have access to the gospel. So the question comes to the church, what do we do? Well, the answer is plain. We go to them, and we send people to them with the message of salvation in Christ. We do things like we just talked about a few minutes ago. We, we make every effort possible to get the good news to the multitudes of those who haven't heard. Which brings us to a question. Must someone hear the gospel to be saved? Must someone hear the gospel to be saved? I'm going to Put the question there. We'll come back to it in a second. Just to plant the thought, the question in our minds. Because functionally, a lot of times we operate as if people really don't have to hear the gospel to be saved. Well, how do you say that, Richard? Well, it's because we aren't as intentional as we should be in actually sharing that gospel. Right? Actually sharing the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the fact that we are dead in our sin and outside of faith and repentance toward Christ, there is no hope for us at all. And so the church, specifically Redeemer Church, we exist to glorify Jesus by making disciples of all nations. And so everything we do from our membership and leadership conversations to organization, structure, worship gatherings, uh, events, trips, all the things that we do, 
are intended to build up the church so that the church can glorify Christ by making disciples of all nations. Which brings us to our urgent task, this urgent task that we have as a church. So look at Romans chapter 10, and we'll pick up midstream. We'll kind of unpack some before and some behind. Uh, But Romans chapter 10 and verse 14. So Paul's writing to the church at Rome, and he says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So our urgent task as the church, with these big numbers, 4.4 billion people who do not know Christ, and unless something significant changes in their lives, they will not have the opportunity to know Christ. Over 7,000 people groups. What are we to do? Well, Romans 10 helps us to understand uh, how we respond as the church to this urgent task. So the first, first truth that we find in Romans chapter 10 is that salvation comes by believing on Christ. This is the same thing we've been saying here at Redeemer for some time now. It's the same thing we're going to keep saying here at Redeemer, that salvation comes by believing on Christ. And so consider with me just for a moment Paul's movement throughout the book of Romans. So go with me uh, to... Romans chapter 1, and in Romans chapter 1, we learn the truth. We're going to look at five significant movements in the book of Romans, thinking about the idea salvation comes only by believing on Christ. Uh, First movement is that all people know about God. So the people who have not heard about Christ, have not heard the gospel, these 4.4 billion, what does the Bible teach us about these people? What does the Bible teach us about ourselves outside of Christ? Well, we know about God, Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, un, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What is Paul saying here? Paul's saying, Here, creation points to a creator. Just look around you. This is a divine design environment that we live in. So creation points to a creator. Therefore, all people know about God. Later in the text, Paul is going to point out that not not only does creation point to a creator, but conscience points to a creator. The fact that we actually know right from wrong. right? We know in a depraved state, in an outside of Christ state, we still know right from wrong. So all people know about God. Secondly, in Romans, we find not just all people know about God, but all people have rejected God. If you go to the next verse there in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul writes, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Skip down to verse 32. Paul says, though they knew, know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So all people know about God, but also all people have rejected God. We disobey what we know to be right and proper. We worship other things instead of God. In the specific context, Paul is referring to things that, uh, that they've exchanged for the glory of immortal God, like birds and animals and creepy things. 
Contextually, in our society, what do we worship instead of God? We worship money. We worship power. We worship sex. We worship possessions. We worship achievement. We, we worship family. We have all these other gods that we lift up above God. So, first movement, all people know about God. Second movement, all people have rejected God. Movement three, therefore, all people are condemned before God. Skip over to chapter three, a text we've looked at uh, recently. Chapter three and verse 10 As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. So with or without religion, we reject God, we resist God, and we even resent God. All people are condemned before God. At this point, Paul's argument is this. We are guilty, we are condemned, not just because we haven't heard, but because of what we have heard and we've rejected. It's not, we're not condemned just because we haven't heard of Christ. We, we are condemned because we have seen God in the world and we've rejected even the understanding of God that we have received from Him. So the question comes in the conversation of taking the gospel to the nations. Well, what about the person who hasn't heard? Like, what about the person who has never heard of Christ, has never heard the gospel of Christ? Surely God, surely a good God wouldn't send that person to hell. Right? That's, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the thinking, the, the line of logic that we bring. Well, some people actually go on to say that, well, if that person doesn't know the truth, then they're innocent of that truth. They're ignorant of that truth. And so then the, kind of the, the, the question ends up with something like this. Well, what about, the, what about the innocent person in the jungles of Africa, in the deserts of Arabia, who has never heard of the gospel? What about that innocent person? Well, if that person is truly innocent, then they get to go to heaven. The problem is, that person doesn't exist. There is no innocent person. Romans 1, 2, and 3, take some time and read it. Paul is building a case for the fact that all men are unrighteous before a righteous and a holy God. Even outside of awareness of the gospel. Because we have awareness of God. Romans 1, the whole argument is, look around you. You see that there is a God. And instead of worshiping the God who has given you all of this, you've, worshiped, you've you started to worship all the things that God has given you. And so the, the, the innocent person does not exist. And so surely, surely, a good, just, and fair God would never send the person who's not heard of Christ to hell. Right? Because what's the cry? What's, what's, what's kind of the, the, the cry that comes up from within us, like pulls on our heartstrings? We say, wait, that's, that's just not fair. Right? That's kind of the language that we use. That's not fair. It's not fair for God to send someone to hell who's never heard of Christ. We have to be very careful about our language of fairness. Especially as Americans. Because we live in a society with certain inalienable rights and all these kinds of things, right? Um, and our understanding of fair and unjust is skewed based on the context in which we live. But here is what is actually not fair. What is actually not fair is what we observed on Good Friday. What is actually not fair is that the perfect sinless Son of God actually died for wretched, depraved, vile sinners like you and me. And so what is not fair is that God would receive any of us. That's truly not fair. So we have to change our language. We have to change our thinking. And God's goodness demands His justice, right? God is a good God, and so therefore God is a just God. And so does 
that innocent person exists? No. And so therefore, every person is under the condemnation of God because all people are condemned before God, Romans 3.10 and 11. And then moving on uh, into Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The one common characteristic that we have with every person on the planet is sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so therefore, God is actually just in sending every one of us to hell. That's fair. (laughs) What is not fair is that God would actually save any of us. Is that he would actually send Christ into this world for the sole purpose of dying the death that was reserved for me and reserved for you. And so the logic doesn't work. The next movement that Paul brings into Romans with uh, our understanding of salvation comes by believing on Christ is that God... So all people are condemned before God. If there's a period there, it's just like, man, that's a downer. Let's go home. Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And this is all we got. Right? But the, the good news is the fourth movement. God made salvation available through Christ. Through Jesus, God makes salvation available. So Romans 3 and verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe key statement we'll come back to it in just a second key word for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of god and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in christ jesus god made salvation available through through christ god's gift redemption through jesus is made available by god's grace grace is actually what is not fair what is fair is that we bear the penalty of our sin and we receive god's wrath And so God in His grace and His kindness toward us extends this grace to us in Christ. And so God is just in all people being condemned because all people have rejected God. And God in His kindness and His goodness has redeemed some people by His grace. And so the key here is verse 22 is that we believe. We receive the gift of grace by believing. So Kind of, let's keep up with the movements here. One, all people know about God. There's at least knowledge about God. Secondly, all people have rejected God. Three, all people are condemned before God because of sin. Four, God made salvation available through Jesus. And then five, we must believe the gospel to be saved. We must believe the gospel to be saved. So just attainment of facts, gaining of knowledge does not save us. Belief saves us which brings us back to our text in romans chapter 10 and the verses before paul starts to unpack the fact that we believe and are saved so romans chapter 10 and verse 9 paul wrote because if you confess with your mouth the lord jesus that jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved so god made salvation available through jesus So God's gift, this redemption through Christ is made available by God's grace and we have to believe on this gospel to be saved. Two words that that Paul uses here, confess and believe. Confess means that there's this this outward confession that flows from an inward conviction. There's an inward reality and we're just expressing what we know to be true. And then also believe. We believe in Christ and we believe on Christ, both His person and His work who He is, and what He does. We believe He died for our sin. We believe God raised Him from the dead to give us life. And so, going on in our text, verse 12, Paul writes, uh, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, 
For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this free gift is ours by faith. That's verse 11. Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. But this free gift is available to all. There is no distinction. There is no Jew. There is no Greek. In the context, Paul is referencing the Jews primarily. Right? He's, he's writing. He's, if, you, if you go back and you look at, at the, the statements leading up to our, our text for this morning, he's referencing the fact that Israel had every advantage known to man and still rejected Christ. Right? They had the inside track to this gospel thing. And they said, no. And so then Paul is arguing, he's saying, so it's not just for Jews. It is for Jews and Gentiles, which, by the way, church, that's good for us. <laughs> that's good for me. That's good for you. And so this free gift of God is available to all. And this reality of new life, this free gift of new life is for all of us. So as we think about this urgent task, we need to remember, as we think about 4.4 billion people, we have to remember that salvation comes only by believing on Christ. Only. Only. We can't just sit back and chill and just throw happy thoughts toward the 4.4 billion. Because the happy thoughts are just going to kick them in the backside on their way to hell. So salvation comes by believing on Christ. Secondly, people must hear to believe. So if salvation comes by believing on Christ, what has to happen before they can believe? They have to hear, which is our text we read just a minute ago. Paul concludes this previous thought with a reference from Joel 2 where he says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you were trained in the Roman road to salvation method of sharing the gospel, like Romans 10, 13 was the, the linchpin, right? That's where, that's where, I mean, the hook was set. And right, rightly so. Like the, 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 com, the confirmation and the confidence that we have from Romans ten thirteen is, hey, if you believe and call on the Lord and you're he will save you. He will, he will call you into His family. And so we believe on Christ, but then Paul says we call on Christ. What, is, what does he mean here? How then can they call on Him, verse 14? Well, John stopped referring to this idea of calling on Him. He explains it this way. To call on the name of the Lord is to appeal to Him to save us in accordance with who He is and what He has done. There's this, there's this confessional reality. If you go back into verse nine and verses nine and ten, he refers to confessing with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There's this calling aspect, and so in verse fourteen, Paul begins this series of key questions for uh, how statements: How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And so you kind of get the the progression here. Okay, so if everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and believing, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, verse eleven. How are they going to call on the one in whom they have not believed? So there's a progression. Call, believe, hear, preach, sent. So you just kind of connect connect some dots there. How are they to call on the one in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe if they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And just side note here, that's not necessarily preaching in the sense of like I do weekly or others do here weekly, but it's proclaiming. The word there is actually herald. It's, it's the heralding idea where in their context, they didn't have mass communication systems where we could pull, I could pull out my phone and send a remind text and everybody at Redeemer gets it no matter where you are. But there was a town square where when there was a message for the citizens of the town from a ruling authority, a herald would come and he would, whatever, hear ye, hear ye, and everybody would listen. 
right? And he would proclaim it loudly so everybody got the same message the same way. And so that's the idea of preaching. We are heralding. And so we are heralding, obviously, this gospel message. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So just think about what the obvious answer is to all of these questions. How are they to call on whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? The obvious answer is they can't. They can't, they, they can't believe unless someone is sent to preach so that they can hear, so they can believe, and so they can call. We can only believe on that which we have heard. And so we have two realities here. We, we respond to what we know of God in creation, which is sufficient. We respond to what we know of God in conscience, which is sufficient. And both aspects of those knowledges from Romans 1 and 2 are sufficient enough to condemn us because we're going to reject God. And so the key question that we have to answer is we think about this urgent task of over 4.4 billion people. Must someone actually hear the gospel to be saved? Does someone actually have to hear the gospel to be saved? Yes, yes, yes. No one comes to faith in Christ outside of hearing the gospel. That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 10. That's his whole point. How are they going to call on whom they have never believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone proclaiming? How are they to preach? How are they to proclaim unless they are actually sent? So, brings us to verse 17, faith comes by hearing, a condensed version of his argument in verse 14, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of Christ here being the person and work of the Lord Jesus, we would call this the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so, maybe just like we hear this and we're like, okay, yeah, that that makes sense. People need to hear the gospel. But functionally and practically, we operate kind of as if um, we really think someone can just respond to the knowledge that they have, maybe not know the full truth of the gospel, and God will just call it good enough, right? Hey, man, I appreciate your good effort in trying to get to where I am. We're going to make an exemption for you. Like we're, we're, we're kind of functional universalists, right? Like a universalist is a person who believes everybody's getting to the same place, right? We're all trying to get to God, and you just have a different method than I do, but we're just universally doing good things, trying to get there, and we're all in the sweet by and by going to make it, right? Which we know is terrible heresy, (laughs) right? We would call that out as heresy real quick. But practically, we function as universalists, right? If we held to the truth that someone must hear the gospel to be saved, doesn't it just make sense that we'd actually share the gospel? And I'm, like, I'm preaching to you and to me here. Right? Like, day by day by day, in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities, wherever. Like, if we really believe, if I really believe that unless Lucas hears the gospel, he's going to die and be condemned to hell forever. But the beauty and glory of Christ is worth Lucas' worship. And the only way for Lucas to worship Christ is for him to hear the gospel. So for me to go to the awkward moment of, hey man, I've got the most important news in my life I need to share with you. Let's do lunch tomorrow. Or let's talk right now. Or whatever. Or let's liquidate our assets, get on a plane, and we're going to go to, by God's grace, put a dent in this 4.4 billion people in the world. 
who don't know the gospel, who have no access to the gospel. And I'm going to pray that by God's grace and for his glory, he might use me and my family to put a dent in that darkness. So, a story to illustrate what we're talking about. The fact that just knowledge about God is not enough. Awareness of God is not enough. Uh, Hold your finger there in Romans 10 and, and turn with me to Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, we're introduced to um, a man named Cornelius, who was, uh, who was not a, Cornelius was not a Jew, he was on the outside, um, and the story of Cornelius helps us to understand what it actually takes for a person to be saved. And listen, if you're not saved this morning, pay attention to the story of Cornelius. If you're kind of like, I mean, I think I'm saved, I do a lot of good stuff, like if that's your mentality, really pay attention. To Cornelius. All right, so Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Listen to his description. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. I mean, what does Cornelius sound like? Man, sign him up. We want him on Redeemer's team. Right? Sounds like a solid dude. Verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. Listen to the detail. Love this. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. (laughs) The Lord's just divinely orchestrating these things for Cornelius here. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, having related everything to them, and he sent them to Joppa. So there's our introduction to Cornelius. Sounds like a solid guy, but we know something's going on here because an angel says, hey, you need to hear what Peter has to say, right? And so Cornelius, there's there's a sense in which Cornelius is actually seeking after God, and he says, hey, you, 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 and you, and you, go to Joppa and get this guy. He's at this place. This is the owner. This is what he does, and it's by the sea. Meantime, Peter's actually having this vision that's going to allow Peter to, with clear conscience, actually go to Cornelius. All right, just that's a sermon for another time. Verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man. So the guys who worked for Cornelius actually actually recognized these traits in him. Who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. So a few days' journey. Cornelius was expecting them, called together his relatives and close friends. So you kind of get the picture here. Cornelius is like, hey, an angel told me to, tell, to send word to this guy, Peter, to come and talk to me. Y'all all need to come hear what he has to say. Right? He basically throws a, a party, like invites everyone in to hear what Peter has to say. So when Peter entered, verse 25, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. That's kind of weird, right? But Peter lifted him up and said, 
stand up. I too am a man. <laughs> like, kind of like, what's wrong with you? This just, I just walked in, this got awkward really quick. And so Peter goes to Cornelius. Cornelius worships him upon his arrival. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Peter sees, like, whoa, we've got a big crowd. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's related to Peter's vision that he had. So when I was sent for, I came without, without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. <laughs> so there's the picture. Peter walks in. There's a crowd, say, this size. And it's like, hey, y'all know I'm not supposed to be here. According to the law, Jews are not supposed to hang out with you, but God has shown me otherwise. So why am I here? <laughs> Just a mystery for Peter. And so Cornelius begins to recount his dream. And then uh, he, he gathers. And so then Peter says, oh, look at verse 33. This is Cornelius speaking to uh, Peter. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been command, commanded by the Lord. So Cornelius basically says, I don't know what you're supposed to say either. Say something. And so he says, whatever the Lord tells you to say, say. So Peter, like a good Christian, not just a good church leader, but a good Christian, takes the opportunity and opens his mouth and proclaims what? The gospel. Look at verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand God shows no partiality. And every nation who fears him, but in every nation anyone who fears him does what is right and acceptable to him. As the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. This is Peter's extended version of the gospel story. He's just, all he's doing is talking about Jesus. He's saying, well, let me tell you about this guy. The most important guy, Jesus. And so verse, th verse 43, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Note that Peter doesn't endorse Cornelius' upright lifestyle and say, Man, I hear this about you. You must be all right. Like, no, nah, man, you're good. Let's go ahead and eat. But Peter tells Cornelius plainly, and all those who are with Cornelius, you must believe. Now, let's ask the question, how in the world could he have believed unless someone came and proclaimed? Right? Why did God show up to Cornelius through an angel and say, go call this guy, and in the meantime, God is working in Peter's own life to help him to understand it's actually okay to go and visit with Cornelius. And then Peter shows up and he's like, why am I here? Cornelius is like, why are you here? Say what God wants you to say. Peter says, it must be about Jesus. And he just stands up and proclaims Jesus, but then concludes it with, you must believe. By believing on his name, you receive forgiveness of sins. And so then look at what 
how Peter goes back and reports this event to the other apostles in uh, chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 13. So he's talking about how he entered the man's house. And uh, verse 13, he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. This message by which you will be saved. Note that God did not choose to speak through the angel to Cornelius. God did not use the angel to communicate the gospel. God used the angel to go to, to communicate, communicate to Cornelius to go and get the herald. There is a proclaimer. He is in Joppa. He's at Simon the Tanner's house, a house by the sea. Go find him and he will come and tell you what you need to know. And then Peter shows up, and in the middle of this confusion, it's pretty clear that God has set the stage for what? The gospel. For Peter to go and to tell Christ. And so people must hear the gospel to believe. So must someone hear the gospel to actually be saved? Yes. Yes, there is no other way. There is no other way. Which brings us to our task, our privilege, and our responsibility as the church. Our task is urgent. Think about this. God in His divine wisdom and in His kind providence has established the church as plan A for making the gospel known to the nations. We are plan A. You know what plan B is? Nothing. (laughs) Plan B doesn't exist. We are the plan through which God has said, I will make my gospel known to the nations through you. Matthew 28, we're to make disciples of all nations. Acts 1, Jesus tells the followers there, and before the Spirit comes on the church, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We are God's plan for making this glorious gospel known to our neighbors and to the nations. 4.4 billion people on this planet with little to no access to the gospel. The people who live across the street from us, the people who live across the world from us. And how is God designed for them to hear so that they can believe and call on Him? Us. Surely, Lord, there's a, there's a better way. I know me. And most times I just don't feel like I'm up to the task. To which God responds, exactly. Because if you were up to the task, you would steal the glory. <laughs> right? God uses us so that he alone gets all the glory. Peter shows up in Cornelius' house and he's like, why am I here? Cornelius and others, like you just imagine the crowd like, I mean, I thought this guy was supposed to be bringing something pretty significant. Now he doesn't even know why he's here. To which Cornelius responds, I don't know, just tell us what God tells you to tell us. And then Peter's like, oh, I'm the herald. I'm the reclaimer. I'm the preacher. I am, in this moment, the instrument through which the gospel is going to go to this family. I am the one who's going to say, Christ died for your sins. The perfect, sinless Son of God died for your sins. And by believing on Him, those sins can be forgiven. And you can be made right with God. And church, we're no different than Peter. Right? We are the preachers of Romans chapter 10. We are the proclaimers. We are the heralds in the city square proclaiming, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus. If you line up all the unreached peoples in the world, this helps us 
like just think about the magnitude of this reality. If you lined up all the unreached people of the world in a single file line, they would circle the globe 25 times. 4.4 billion people. And 25 times all of these men, women, boys, and girls marching to their own destruction. And church, they are our privilege. They are our responsibility. That is our task that God has given us. Our task is to get the gospel to them. And so we do things like send people to different cultures, different contexts, different countries to engage people, to engage, to put a dent in this 4.4 billion. Not because we feel bad. Right? Not because we feel guilty. But, we, but because we know that Christ is worth it. We know that Jesus alone is worthy of the worship of all these 4.4 billion. And so it's not the 4.4 billion that compels us to go. It's Christ who compels us to go. The 4.4 billion helps us remember that the task is not complete. And so we can do a couple things. We can walk through life as usual. We can go to work. We can graduate college. We can raise a family. We can long for and work toward retirement when we can finally do whatever we want to do. We can accumulate wealth, possessions, accomplishments for, the, for our own sake, for our own enjoyment. Or we can embrace the mission that God has given us as the church and engage the nations for the glory of King Jesus. Which, when we do that, all of those other things we just referred to come into their proper focus. Like, if, if we are going to go through everyday life with the reality of the urgency of our task, then it's going to drive how we go to work tomorrow. It's going to drive how we spend our money. It's going to drive how we raise our family. It's going to drive what we do with possessions and accomplishments. And so we can, we can view all these things that we hold dear and place value on in life through this lens of the urgent task that God has for us. And so our confession can be like that of Romans fifteen twenty, where Paul says, I make it my ambition to pre- preach the gospel and not where Christ has already been named. And so people will call us crazy. People will call us foolish. People will say, aren't you just wasting your time? Like especially the specific people group that we engage. Like, we know Livingston Parish well enough to know that people think we're just a little bit off for going to these places and working with these people. But when we see God in His grace and for His glory bringing light into darkness, bringing life out of death, bringing new brothers and sisters into the church, it reminds us that we couldn't care less about how people perceive what we do. Our task is to make the glory of Christ known. And so we want to be faithful in whatever aspect of that that God has placed us in. Whether that's sending or going. Whether that's going short term, whether that's going midterm, or whether that's saying, hey, you know what, we're selling everything, we're out of here. And going long term. And if we've tasted the deep well of God's grace, if we're truly redeemed, we really long for others to know the beauty and the glory of redemption in Christ the same way. Salvation in Christ is just way too good for us to keep to ourselves. Which begs the question, well, what if I, I mean, honestly, man, what, what if I really don't care? What if that doesn't stir me? What if that doesn't concern me? Well, based on Scripture... You have to ask if you're actually saved or not. Like if the reality of all these people without Christ doesn't push you toward 
making Christ known in some way, then you've either grown cold to the truth and the life-changing power of the gospel, and so you repent and believe the gospel yet again, or you've spent your life like the Israelites that Paul refers to in Romans chapter 10, all around the gospel, but you've never actually believed the gospel. You've got a form of gospel, you're like Cornelius. Man, I'm an upright man, I'm respected, I'm doing all these things, everybody's opinion of me is good, but there's something missing. And by God's providence, maybe today is kind of the Peter showing up in the house of your life moment saying, hey, here's what you're missing. You're missing the gospel. You're achieving all these personal things, but you're missing the gospel. Israel had more access to the gospel than anyone, but they refused. They were, Romans 10, 21, a disobedient and contrary people. And so you repent and believe the gospel. And so a redeemer... We will continue to bang this drum. We will continue to come back to this message over and over and over and over. We used to use a phrase that um, went something like this. The church is the one organization that exists for the benefit, primarily for the benefit of its non-members. Right? You, you may have heard that. You may have used that. Uh, I used it. Um, when you read scripture, though, Church actually exists for the benefit of the members, for the sake of the nations. Right? So we exist for one another. Right? We encourage one another. We push one another toward Christ because we know that by us collectively growing together in Christ, then we are going to be about God's business of fulfilling our part in this urgent task. I mean, you look, you say, Richard, we have 40, we have 50 people. What are we going to do to 4.4 billion? I'm just telling you, I got a text last week that said we have a new sister. And you and I have a part in that. We have a glorious privilege of being part of what God is doing in bringing men, women, boys, and girls to faith in Christ, especially those who right now have no access to the gospel. And so, what, what is, for this season of your life, what is your part? If it's to effectively sin and to leverage your resources to make the gospel known to the nations, to adjust spending habits so that you can push more money to, the, to God's global mission and support others who are going, well then, make it happen. If it's, hey, I'm kind of in a stage of life where it just kind of makes sense for me to go. It kind of makes sense for us to go. And we believe the Lord is leading in this, us in that direction. Well then, the one way that we gain as a church is by losing you as a church. And so with great joy and great grace, we would say, go, <laughs> go, and we'll send you effectively. We all have a part, and collectively as the church here at Redeemer, we have to be about the business of this urgent task. If we veer from it, we are forsaking the reason for which we exist. We've become a self-help club, some social organization, some peer model group, something. But not the church. Not the church. And so may we be found faithful to this task. Why do we go and do these things? Why do we always talk about this? Because Christ is worth it. Because Christ alone is worth it. That dear sister who believed last week, she's not worth it. She's worth hell, just like I'm worth hell. Right? Just like you're worth hell. (laughs) 
Can we just agree on that? Like, we're collectively worth hell. Christ, however, is worth us doing everything within our power, every ounce of energy for this urgent task. And so let's be faithful. Now, let's be careful here. Disclaimer, and then we'll pray. There are various avenues through which we engage collectively in this global mission. Few will go, many will send. It's just the principle of Scripture. When this began, Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit said to the church in Antioch, set aside Saul and Barnabas to the work to which I've called them. Two people out of a collective went. Right? And so don't buy into the lie of the enemy that says, well, you're not going, so then you're not worth anything. No, you have a functional role in this urgent task of making disciples of all nations. And so pray, seek the Lord, agree as a family what that looks like for you, for this season of life, and trust that by His grace that He is using you to be that herald through which someone will believe. How will they call on whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? This is God's task for us. And so if we're going to be diligent about anything, let's be diligent about this task. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Father, um, Lord, we approach sermons like today with, uh, with a degree of heaviness, and Lord, even a significant amount of self-reflection. Uh, and Lord, may that, may that self-reflection really turn into diligence and prayer as we're seeking you about what our part looks like in making disciples of all nations and lord uh for for those that that means we're gonna we're gonna give we're gonna pray we're gonna encourage we're gonna support lord show us how we do that rightly and properly in ways that please you lord as you call people out of our church to go to the nations lord give grace for us to uh, encourage and for those individuals families to obey lord thank you for uh, the partnership that we have globally and the team that we work with globally and thank you for uh, really god in your kindness implanting this dna in redeemer from the beginning and so we want to be found faithful lord jesus we declare that you alone are worth any worship of the 4.4 billion people who don't know you And so may we be faithful to the task that we have. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.